0: Hello, and welcome to the BICOM podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of BICOM, and today I'm joined by Bethnam Halablu, who is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, a Washington-based think tank, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. Bethnam is a regular briefer to uh, DC journalists, congressional staff, and he's also testified before the US Congress. He is also the author of a comprehensive new report, released just this week, into Iran's ballistic missile program. So we're particularly happy to have you with us, speaking to us today. Thank you very much indeed
1: for joining me. It is an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you very much, Richard, for the uh, invitation, and uh, to all the folks at BICOM who have been producing great work on that subject, uh, Iran and its long-range strike capabilities, for quite a while now.
0: That's very kind. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we could start perhaps with a slightly with a personal question, really, if you could just introduce yourself to our audience and as a native uh, Farsi speaker, perhaps tell us a little bit about your personal background. Uh,
1: absolutely. Well, uh, I'm born and raised in the States uh, for the past literally a decade. Uh, I have been with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in Washington, D.C., uh, covering the breadth and depth of Iranian uh, political and security issues, as you mentioned. Uh, But I got a a head start, you could say, well before my DC career, well before my university and graduate schooling uh, on this uh, Iran issue, if you will, given ancestry, given heritage. I'm an Iranian-American. I'm a first-generation American. Both my parents are immigrants from Iran uh, growing up uh, in uh, New York City. You know, you saw the Iran issue kind of live on the news. And I saw how things on the family side, on the personal side, were radically different than how Iran uh, was portrayed and how Iran seems to be uh, from afar. Uh, and the, the study of, of Iran through the cultural lens, the historical lens, the political lens, the security lens were layered on over time. Uh, but we certainly, uh, perhaps you could say, had a, had a head start in this business because my mother's side of the family actually fled uh, Iran particularly uh, after her father uh, was a reporter back in the day, prior to the revolution, taken to a prison that is known to many in your audiences as Evin Prison. So when they got out on bail, that's how the family left. Uh, and long story short, uh, that kind of operated in the background of a lot of different uh, lenses and assumptions of watching Iran in the news uh, for me growing up. It's something I'm cognizant of, it's something I'm respectful of. And at the same time, I think it's important to, to kind of want to be able to build a bridge and, and to tell a story uh, about where you're from and to be able to make sense of how something got to be what it is. And knowing the Iran that my parents knew through their stories and seeing the Iran, unfortunately, what it's become today, uh, was something that must have been made sense of for me. And I think at my uh, humble start of what you might potentially call a career here, uh, I've tried to do that, and I've tried to do that in the places that I could shine a light on, uh, as best as I could, both personally and professionally.
0: Fantastic, thank you. thank you for that. Well, there's a, there's a whole range of aspects of uh, Iranian uh, related issues that I that I want to ask you about. Perhaps we can start kind of the top line about uh, Iran's nuclear program. Um, we saw just about a week ago the latest IAEA statement. Um, raising concern about 60% of enrichment um, at the site in Fordow. What's your current assessment of how close they are to the nuclear threshold?
1: Well, in many ways, I'm glad this word is in the lexicon, the nuclear threshold, because the debate over red lines right now are not just technical and they're not just political, they're both. Uh, A making sense of where the regime is technically is going to have to be based on political and policy grounds and having a political and a policy red line is going to have to be based in some kind of technical coherence. And lest we forget, this entire debate was about Iran not having domestic enrichment on its own soil while it's in violation of larger international safeguards and treaty obligations. So, you know, Iranian violations of the NPT and the violations of the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement are why people had concerns about low-level enrichment, as low as 35 to 5% potentially even happening in Iran. Lest we forget, before the advent of the 2015 nuclear deal called the JCPOA, there were at least five UN Security Council resolutions calling for a full cessation of this. The regime not only got you know, uh, to win the 5% issue by going first to 20% in 2012, producing 20% at the Fordo plant, which as you know, is buried well underground. This is not something meant to be seen or detected. Uh, it's hardened, it's designed to be uh, kind of impervious, if you will, to, to military attack, at least that's how the regime has framed it. There is talk uh, that some Western intelligence agencies were following Iranian tunneling here before, Uh, There is documentation about what the um, Iranian tunneling was meant for in the past. If you look at things like the Atomic Archive, which is something that the Israelis seized and exposed to the world in 2018 or 19, if I'm not mistaken. And that ultimately, uh, if the regime is producing enrichment to some of the highest levels it's publicly declared to produce at, which is 60%, which is something they started doing in April 2021, uh, and now have, depending on how you count, between four to six bombs worth of uranium amassed on their territory. Um, it, it, that kind of tells you the trend lines of, of where they're headed. And this this debate over red lines uh, really does need to be muted because it's much more about thresholds, It's much more about where the regime's intentions are, given the capabilities that they have amassed over this time. And those really are some scary capabilities. There are at least three and 60% is one of them, but three areas of irreversible nuclear gains that the regime has made just in the past two, two and a half years, really since late 2020, since Washington's Iran policy did a 180 and punches were pulled and pressure was relieved. Area number one, as you mentioned exactly, is 60%. This was something the regime threatened to do, threatened well over a decade ago in 2011, 2012, when they talked about the ostensible need for naval nuclear propulsion, And, you know, lest we forget, the regime actually does not have uh, nuclear submarines. It has diesel-electric-powered submarines. But ultimately, that was one uh, kind of, uh, you know, lie or excuse given. Two is the Iranian uh, increased testing and employment of advanced centrifuges, centrifuges being the machines that spin uranium at high rates. Advanced centrifuges are made of stronger uh are made stronger with higher strength steels like miraging steel and carbon fiber rotors uh, you can basically produce more faster and with a smaller footprint so they're essential for a sneak out kind of program there's more of those and we have less eyes on its production and less eyes on exactly how many uh, iran has and how where they may be uh, given iran's erosion of the long, of the inspections and lastly is production of uranium metal, which the regime has no ostensible immediate, I should say, uh, civilian need for. This is something that has direct military application to a potential nuclear core if they wanted to move it in there. That was also something that happened in 2021. But in August 2021, they used 20% enrichment, which is the cutoff for highly enriched uranium in this uranium uh, uh, metal production, which scientists believe likely is the regime experimenting with how does the the potential core that they might want to build down the line Uh, react, or how does the metal, I should say, react um, uh, when uh, it's at this level, at this HEU level. So taken together, the 60% challenge uh, with those other irreversible points of nuclear knowledge, coupled with some of the stuff being deeply underground at Fordo, and coupled with the challenge of pinning down a a political versus a technical red line anymore, tells you that the regime is already at the threshold. Much of this, I hate to say it, is a debate on the regime side, about will than capability, given our outsized questions about weaponization, what we don't know and what we do know.
0: Mm. I mean, and just to be clear, um, if, uh, when you when you enrich to sixty percent, there's no other civilian justification for that except for reaching to the uh, to, to reach the threshold for a nuclear weapon.
1: You you could I mean I I do believe that this re, this regime's lack of a civilian uh outside civilian need for instance they don't have again those uh nuclear submarines uh, in this instance i think this is this is them training for breakout, precisely
0: and so where do you think the uh, where do you think the, the leadership is currently currently holding on this i mean you mentioned kind of sneak out and uh, or some people calling it creep, creep out or auto breakout um where, where do you think they're they're they are uh strategically heading for this year?
1: I think it would be a mistake for uh, Western audiences, policy audiences in particular, to take a snapshot of the Iranian nuclear program. It's much more critical to take a video uh, of of its evolution over time, because this is somewhat unlike part of the North Korean or Pakistani programs where it's an immediate sprint for the bomb. Uh, and there's you know, two steps forward, one step back in certain areas, they'll you know, willing to give up on some things and not on others. Ultimately, I think a nuclear weapon from the perspective of this regime, based on the national security policies of this regime, based on the ideology of this regime, based on the security strategy of this regime, suits its interests. And it is desiring this ultimate weapon. And it sees this ultimate weapon as the ultimate deterrent. And it has paid immensely over the past four decades in terms of treasure and even occasionally in blood. Uh, to sustain a pathway to that weapon. And I do not see them having come this far merely for a science fair experiment. So I think, yes, the intention is to get it. Uh, For them, the qualitative difference versus some of those other countries we mentioned at the helm is how to do it, how to do it, quote unquote, safely, where they are most immune from an attack and how to make it really much more of a fate accompli for the world, uh, and therein lies the policy challenge. But for the ultimate goal, the ultimate direction, uh, I believe the trend lines, as well as potentially the regime orders are are really still operating as the zeitgeist of the force of mm. this nuclear program.
0: So I mean, just as you mentioned, kind of the the, the policy uh, alternatives or the or the challenges for uh, for the u s and uh, the E3, the signatures of the JCPOA, um, obviously the UK, France and Germany, what's your assessment of where they're currently, uh, currently holding?
1: You know, most unfortunately, uh, I, they do not appear to be using all of the tools at their disposal. For instance, the Biden administration here in Washington, for instance, seems to be kind of paving the lead here in the transatlantic relationship Uh, was repaired and I think always should be kind of united on this larger Iran issue, and in particular on the Iran nuclear challenge. Uh, But as you know, it was divided during the Trump administration. And I think most unfortunately, Iran learned again that it could divide both sides of the Atlantic. And we saw some uh, very unfortunate things, which is our E3 allies, you know, working to kind of find ways around American sanctions to kind of placate the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, which I think is a very unhelpful policy and kind of hurtful when you say it out loud and that plainly, but uh, there it is. Uh, now, mm-hmm. kind of moving forward from that experience, uh, the administration desires a deal for political reasons, the legacy of the 2015 deal from the Obama era. This is basically democratic foreign policy 101, uh, large D, there's the partisan element. But beyond that, in terms of the strategy administration seems qualitatively disinterested in the middle east that's the larger american structural challenge to contend with and then beyond that uh doesn't see the iran threat in its breadth and depth yes there are some efforts with partners to kind of roll back iranian networks or at least interdict shipments of weapons but i see that as largely ornamental and instrumental uh, ornamental rather than instrumental in its iran policy because at the helm of that policy is the resurrection of this nuclear deal uh, even if it only will provide one to two to three years maximum before some more of these sunsets uh, kick in, and this is uh, akin to trying to kick the can down the road, but not knowing you don't have a road, you're about to kick the can at a wall, and the wall and the wall is about to <laughs> rebound the can uh, at, at your face. So this is the position the the transatlantic community is in. So what I think they should do instead, rather than continue to keep the door open for this fatally flawed deal, is to use some of the mechanisms mechanisms of the deal. To unwind the pressure that has kind of been built up and restore a multilateral consensus uh, against the Islamic Republic. And they can do that through the snapback mechanism. What snapback, which is only legally, quote unquote, available until 2025, and that right, quote unquote, will, quote, sunset in 2025, is basically to collapse the UN Security Council Resolution 2231 through a UN Security Council process that reverse engineers the veto mechanisms where only one partner uh, is needed to trigger this. There's a whole mechanism I won't bore you with through something the Brits have actually triggered about a year ago called the dispute resolution mechanism, which is a glide path uh, to ride up to the Security Council to potentially trigger this uh, based on Iranian violations. And then ultimately, what that would do is restore those older Uh, U.N. Security Council resolutions that called for no enrichment, no reprocessing, had a permanent rather than temporary and lapsing arms ban, had a permanent missile testing prohibition rather than a lapsing one, uh, and ultimately had a panel of experts in there that could kind of adjudicate violations of resolutions uh, uh, in in, in their own uh, time. Now, obviously, Iran would respond to this move, but uh, to say that Iran would respond to this move and violate the deal would be to miss the forest through the trees, that the policy of appeasement and the policy of handcuffing your own pressure and the policy of pulling punches for the past two and a half years, as we mentioned, has given the regime the time and the space to read us a certain way, as well as to make the qualitative and irreversible gains, that troika of gains, 60% advanced centrifuges and uranium metal that cannot be taken away, which is something very scary to think about. So step one, we need to align our ways, means, and ends in the transatlantic community on Iran. The way to do that is to literally snap back, that would restore the predicate, and from there we can build up together.
0: Um, you mentioned the uh, multilateral mechanism. I mean, in, in the context of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is there any expectation that the uh, US in, and E3 can cooperate with Russia um, and China as well, I suppose?
1: None whatsoever, which is precisely why the policy of, J- of keeping the JCPOA alive, where literally Russia is expected to midwife the deal on Iran's behalf. And if we recall from uh, you know, post-Ukraine uh, war invasion of February 2022, the Russians were the ones who held up diplomacy in March 2022, so as to make sure that whatever uh, deal or dividend would come out of their engagement with the Iranians and the Americans and the rest of the P5 plus one, uh, they could still kind of retain sanctions, carve-outs for, based on what they were being faced with for what they have done in Ukraine, which is a very problematic thing to have, but there mm-hmm. you have it. Uh, beyond that, of course, I think the international community should be more skeptical of mm-hmm. Russia's involvement in their civil nuclear programs worldwide. We know, you know, the Russian nuclear agency, Rosatom uh, has contracts globally, not just with the Iranians. So that is something to kind of take into account as well, as the world looks to find more creative vectors for pressure after year one of the ukraine war anniversary it's not just russia iran it's it's a bit more global than that and that will mean challenges for the kind of commercial civil nuclear space as well but we need to get the markets thinking about that and there are people who are doing right now creative thinking uh as to how to find ways around that but a signal does indeed have to be sent out to the markets because the politics of it have fundamentally changed post february 24. um but then to the, to the snapback element, the good news is that it can happen absent one of those partners. The challenge will be certainly in the medium to long term getting their buy-in for some of the sanctions measures. Uh, but to restore the multilateral predicate for pressure, no, you don't need the Russians or Chinese. That's one of the built-in dividends of snapback.
0: Mm. And I mean, you mentioned before about kind of in the past, in the recent past, where there's been discrepancy between the, within, within the Atlantic Alliance between the. US position and the Europeans, I suppose uh, coming from from uh, and the Brits, what do you make of the of the British approach and kind of how, how coordinated are they now with the,
1: with the current. US administration? Well, this is where there may be a, a sliver of optimism is because the good news, regardless of politics, uh, is that wherever one may fall on the Brexit issue, in terms of authorities, in terms of capabilities, in terms of reach, in terms of economic efficacy, uh, and in terms of you know knowledge as far as we can tell, uh, outside of the u s treasury uh, Hmt uh, you know his majesty's treasury now uh, has the requisite authorities capabilities, understandings of a sovereign sanctions regime. so in terms of global sanctioned shops, yes, the eu has a very wide, expansive sanction shop. There are some other countries uh, around the world, not all of them Commonwealth club nations, but some of them are uh, that also do have these kind of sovereign sanctions authorities. But the u k one is believed to be the second biggest after the u s one. And if we are going to be in this this we are going to accelerate this trend of transatlantic collaboration and cooperation. It would first make sense that before Washington lands onto the continent, the square with the British Isles and on these kind of sanctions authorities, those are the low hanging fruits to make sure we are the most integrated. The good news is uh, really in the past, I would say maybe nine months, you have seen a bridging of this transatlantic gap on the non-nuclear front. I think there is significant room for improvements for all sides on the nuclear front, but particularly on the drone front, for instance, we are seeing the UK and the EU literally copy paste sometimes uh, older Uh, you know, Iran military-related sanctions targets uh, on the drone file, for instance, from Commerce and Treasury Departments, respectively, in the U.S. And that's a sign that they are sharing information, that they have a similar assessment of the threat, and that they want to make sure that their authorities, legally and politically, are all squared away with one another. That's the good news. The bad news is that so long as the policy in London and in Brussels and elsewhere is to keep the door open for the deal and to not snap back sanctions, uh, they're going to be doing things that will undermine the green shoots of this cooperation on the drone front, for instance. And uh, one place where the UK and the EU will stand to unfortunately undermine this is come this October, October, 2023, as the EU and the UK are bridging that gap and adding more drone entities, and adding more Iranian military entities to their sanctions list, given what Iran is doing for Russia, there uh, it is going to be slay, it is going to be delisting the mother load of Iran's defense industrial base uh, from its sanctions list. And you know these lists are public; these are uh, Annex Two of the JCPOA Attachment to. and you Look at who is on that list. It is the motherload of Iran's defense industrial base. I want to stress that again, those who have historically been involved in the procurement production or proliferation, not just of WMD related technology, but most importantly, the missile and military domain, they are going to be going sanctions free. So just as we're trying to web our nets together, that move, keeping the door open for that deal will tear a gaping hole in the converging sanctions architecture.
0: Oh dear. Um, I wanted to focus on some of this uh, non, non-nuclear front, as you put it, and kind of also reference and what I mentioned at the beginning, this uh, fascinating monograph on Iran's nuclear uh, ballistic missile program that you've just, uh, you've just authored. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, perhaps, I know it's a very extensive report, um, what aspects should be of most concern um, to the West?
1: oh goodness i think i think the entire program should be of concern to the west but just a, a brief historiography uh, if i may uh, the sure. regime procured these weapons out of necessity uh, basically every kind of outsized national security threat that we face uh as an international community vis-a-vis the islamic republic was born not immediately of the revolution uh, although hostage taking was and and the, kind of the threat to Uh, the the threat of Islamist governance was, for instance, um, many of the national security side threats, particularly in terms of the capabilities, were acquired or earned or procured during the 1980-1988 Iran-Iraq war. After all, it's during that period that we have Iranian threats to freedom of navigation and the free flow of oil on the Persian Gulf Mm of Hormuz. It's during that period that the regime resurrects the late Shah's nuclear program. It's during that period that the regime... Uh, is supporting global terrorism and hijacking operations and terrorism operations. And in particular, that's when Lebanese Hezbollah, its most successful proxy to date, uh, was born and did cut its teeth through blood. Uh, And uh, ultimately, it's it's that period that the regime looked abroad to places like Syria, Libya, North Korea, to acquire a capability to respond, as they call, in kind, against Saddam's long-range strike capabilities during that eight-year bloody war. And they acquired these liquid propellant SCUD missiles uh, and ultimately learned how to kind of reverse engineer and tinker with some of them, uh, and then kept looking abroad post-war for some wholesale systems, some commercial contracts for missile and military-related components. China, Russia were outsized players here in the 1990s after the war, Uh, North Korea remained like an outsized major force, particularly on some longer-range strike stuff, even into the 2000s. North Korea is the one who has given Iran uh, its first liquid-propellant medium-range ballistic missile that was nuclear-capable. That was the Shahab-3, which is a you know Iranian version of the Nodong-A uh, MRBM that the North Koreans have. Uh, Iran's heavier liquid-propellant system called the Horam-Shar, which allegedly Iran received from North Korea in 2005, is called the BM-25 or the Musudan. Uh, that, too, is from North Korea. Iran has a robust solid and liquid propellant satellite program uh, that does use some of those, uh, you know, uh, Shahab-3 missile uh, engines and kind of a cluster formation in terms of staging. Uh, The solid propellant program, which also got its start in rockets rather than missiles in the uh, Iran-Iraq war, is something that the regime has worked to add precision to in terms of guidance kits and not just inertial control and navigation, but fins and finlets and maneuvering reentry vehicles and terminal phase steering of shorter range systems, particularly those under a thousand kilometers. These are militarily some of the regime's most useful systems for striking targets on the battlefield. The greater the regime's capabilities in terms of these uh, easier to store, easier to fuel, easier to move, easier to put in their multiple underground bunkers and bases, uh, the more likely the regime is to use it. So it's kind of a feed loop for the regime. The greater the capability, Uh, The more they'll produce it, the more they produce, the more they have on hand, the more they have on hand, the more they want to use it. And increasingly, they have been using it. And the more the non-response to their use, just like with terrorism, uh, the more likely they will be inclined to use it and test it, and not just test it, but transfer it to proxies and partners. And Iran, as you know, has a broad array of proxies and partners in the Middle East that they call the axis of resistance. Uh, It has done things for this axis in terms of at least the rocketry, but not missiles for Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas with Hezbollah. It's now working through a PGM program, a report uh, that BICOM has put out, you know, really shed, really helped to, you know, shine a light on this issue in, in the past few years. But basically taking Hezbollah's rockets and converting them to missiles, trafficking these precision kits across what is popularly called a land bridge in the heart of the Middle East that connects Iran to Iraq, to Syria, to Lebanon. And then ultimately inside Syria is producing missile factories, missile depots that are controlled not just by the Assad regime, but, you know, it's patchwork of Shiite militias that operate transnationally. In terms of Iraq, we know they have proliferated short-range ballistic missiles to some of those militias there and are working with them in that space. But to the Houthis in Yemen is where the biggest deterrent dividend uh, has come from. They've equipped them to the teeth. Even just this September, for instance, there was a Houthi military parade. Uh, that showed at least three newer versions of Iranian precision strike systems in their arsenal. So this is a capability that is growing. This is a capability that provides the regime not just a nuclear option, but a conventional deterrent option. Uh, it mm. is not just a weapon of terror. It is a battlefield weapon. The regime is using it more often in military operations. And unlike the proxy strategy, which is private, they're using some of these things openly It's political- missile arsenal, as multiple American directors of National Intelligence have said, is the largest in the region. So quantitatively it is a threat and it is now moving to make it a qualitative threat in terms of precision, in terms of range, in terms of lethality, in terms of survivability, in terms of mobility. And lest we forget this is not a threat contained to the region, there are multiple range fans we need to be aware of. For instance, a missile that can go a thousand kilometers means something different if it is in Sana'a versus if it is in Shah, Iran, versus if it is in Damascus, Syria. So the range hands that we have to consider are also changing and are also different, and where we focus our missile and air defense assets on constantly have to be changing to take in, this into account. And even if we don't take that into account, the regime has on several occasions threatened Europe, uh, that its 2,000-kilometer range cap, which is allegedly this upward political cap. It's not a technical cap. It's not a capabilities cap imposed on its large arsenal, uh, could be removed at any time. And you've had IRGC generals even threaten Europe with this, uh, saying that if they took a confrontational stance, that this cap would be removed and that Europe would fall under increasingly longer-range Iranian uh, uh, systems. Um, Right now, they can target kind of lower-tier Eastern Europe and parts of Southern Europe, uh, but again, depending on where you fire that, that may change. And depending on capabilities that Iran has, so that it could move from its quote unquote space program into uh, its immediate military program, would give the regime the capability to fire longer and further. And this is especially a problem because during the pandemic, starting in 2020, we saw the regime publicly unveil a solid propellant space program rather than a liquid propellant space program. And this solid propellant space program is run by the IRGC rather than the Iranian Space Agency. And it's mobile. uh, And this stuff, again, can be fueled in advance given that it's solid propellant and there is a greater military application for it. And they're testing larger and larger diameter motors. And even the Iranian press nowadays is bold enough to occasionally call this uh, a pathway for an ICBM. So there are many reasons to be afraid, not just the nuclear one, but there are steps that Europe can and should take. But step one, needs to be to see the threat beyond the realm of the JCPOA, to snap back those sanctions, to gain the authorities, to gain the capabilities, and to take off the handcuffs of some of Europe and America's most powerful financial tools, to go after this defense industrial base, rather than to free it and to give it a lease on life uh, at a critical juncture.
0: Wow, fascinating and, uh, and highly, highly disturbing. Um, I mean, just one I mean, There are lots of angles that I could follow up on, but I perhaps um, if I can ask you now about the kind of the, the recent uh, deployment um, to help the Russians in the Ukrainian theater and what we've learned about the Iranian capacity, um, both if they're supplying ballistic weapons, but also kind of in the public domain, at least uh, the, the use of uh, of drone technology there. What's your assessment of that?
1: So I'm I'm glad drones have been brought up though I am the, you know the first to say in Washington given that this monograph took almost three years during the the course of writing it in and- You know, compiling all the data, which is all open source, all publicly available and heavily footnoted because we want people to check and engage with the material and see how so much Mm -hmm. of this is simply hiding in plain sight. This is how the regime operates. People will gloss past a news story every day, but the data therein is rich. And we are watching the story of change over time in Iranian military capabilities. No one is saying the regime is going to be a conventional power overnight, but when a conventional power like the Russian Federation looks to an asymmetric power like the Islamic Republic of Iran to be an amplifier for its long-range strike capabilities, to be an amplifier for cheaper uh, unmanned alternatives, Uh, this tells you something about the evolution uh, of the Iranian threat. And what this regime has done, uh, whereas it has not been able to procure uh, a you know significant uh, air force. Uh, it's been cannibalizing even what it had since it inherited from what what it inherited from the revolution, I should say, of American uh, older jets. Uh, it has moved to master the entire spectrum that you mentioned of unmanned aerial threats. So mortars, rockets, drones, cruise missiles, and ballistic missiles, and it's this mastery of the spectrum of this entire arsenal that the, the regime has, and they can throw a different tool into a different cocktail, a different combination uh, into a different theater at a different time. And that is what is keeping it in the fight for so long. And that's what's keeping the Russians in the fight. No one is saying that the European Union has not done enough, but actually some, some many many are saying the European Union has not done enough, but on the sanction side, the speed with which the European Union moves, not on the military side, the sanction side, uh, we saw things that took maybe 10 years to get on the Iran front, that took maybe three, four months to get on the on the Russia front. So the Europeans have done a great deal of economic damage to get the Russians to not have the military wherewithal to not stay in the fight longer. But these Iranian drones, which are sometimes even $20,000, particularly the loitering munitions like the Shahhead-136, are designed to be cheaper, to be fired in Moss, are designed to target civilian Uh, sites and critical infrastructure with 40 kilogram warheads and these systems that can fly from far out of range, about a thousand kilometers even, uh, to do this kind of damage, this is what they're precisely for. They're lower and slower threats, which fortunately do provide alternatives and capabilities for the Ukrainians to use manned assets to take them down, to literally train Uh, on these. And from what we've heard, night vision has actually been quite critical because there have been many night strikes employing these suicide drones that the Iranians have given the Russians. Uh, But it's keeping the Russian war machine going. That is essentially what it is. It is an asymmetric actor telling someone, here's how you can fight more cost effectively. And if the major European pushback on Russia is this economic one rather than military one, uh, then this is how Uh, the regime is helping Russia maximize its staying power. Now, the scary thing is there is no report of the official transfer of those ballistic missiles yet. There has been talk about it, but we don't know why it has not materialized. One reason could be Iran is waiting for the missile prohibition in UN Security Council Resolution 2231 to lapse. Others are saying maybe there's something in terms of the Russia-Iran dealings. Maybe the Iranians want something the Russians won't offer. We know from the Iranian press, for instance, that... The the Iranians are alleging the Russians will give them the Su-35 by Persian New Year this year, which is March 2023, first day of spring. So ultimately, uh, there could be be something there that is holding up the transfer. But if this transfer does happen, it would be the most significant state-to-state transfer of ballistic missile capabilities uh, outside the Middle East by Iran. Uh, But on the drone side, unfortunately, that technology has proliferated. There are Iranian drones in Venezuela, there are Iranian drones in Ethiopia, and as we know from the heartland of the battlefields across the Middle East, uh, whether it's uh, Iraq, whether it's Syria, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Yemen, uh, whether it's the Palestinian territories that are firing this stuff, there is evidence of Iranian fingerprints there as well. But a problem of the Middle East is likely not going to be contained in the Middle East, and that is the threat of this evolving pattern of Iranian weapons proliferation, and the unique challenge it, 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 it uh, posits when America and the, kind of the liberal world orders adversaries are pulling closer together in the military, economic and security spaces.
0: Thank you for that. I want to change tack for a moment. Um, and we saw recently reports of uh, an attack on a weapons factory um, in Isfahan, um, in Southwest of the Iran. Um, what, did you, what did you make of that attack? Um, Why there? Why then?
1: So many see this as kind of a continuation of, uh, you know, what uh, in Israel is called the war between the wars, uh, or sometimes broadly in the press is called the kind of the Israel-Iran Cold War. Many do believe that the Uh, quadcopter drones, which are unique, by the way, because in this sense, they're A, they're commercially available, B, they can be retrofitted with those bomblets that the press reported, and C, they have to be operated from within a much closer range. So it tells you something about the depth or the network of penetration uh, that uh, Israel or the potential foreign actor who did this uh, may have uh, in terms of access to Iranian territory. So there's there's that component to look at it as well, but this is not the first time uh, such a weapon, a quadcopter drone with bomblets, uh, was used against an Iranian military facility, particularly one that was believed to be supply, uh, you know, producing drones. There is, of course, some tie in to could this be a evolving, uh, evolving element of the war between the wars now that Prime Minister Netanyahu is back at the helm, or could this be uh, something tied to? the Israelis wanting to help the Ukrainians, uh, given that Iran is sending those drones to uh, to Russia for use against those targets we discussed uh, in Ukraine. Um, but more broadly, kind of zooming out about, if, if one looks at this as trying to handicap the Iranian production capability, uh, it would make sense that the actor that the press has uh, alleged to be behind it, uh, and that is the uh, Israelis, it would make sense that they're trying to do this in terms of a death by a thousand cuts approach to Iran's larger kind of defense industrial base. Now, the open question is, how will Iran respond? Uh, for instance, given that I said it's not the first time quadcopter drones were used against a drone factory, we have to look at the last time, which was February 2022. And in February 2022, uh, those quadcopter drones attacked allegedly a whole airfield in Western Iran in Kermanshah, where there were several Iranian drones there, and took out uh, the entire facility. Uh, the response came in mid-March, 2022, uh, against uh, basically civilian sites in Iraqi Kurdistan in northern Iraq. Uh, but that Iran had somehow alleged it was a Mossad safe house or a Mossad cell or some kind of facility associated with the Mossad. But that was 10 precision strike short-range ballistic missiles, solid propellants, by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Aerospace Force at you know that target in northern Iraq. So there may be something beyond the dare there there. Uh, in terms of the Iranian response. But uh, now that we know Iran has these weapons and that the threshold for using them is lower and that it historically has used them against Iraq, and then in, and then shortly thereafter the strike, there was reporting that said Iran may indeed choose to respond. Our eyes should be peeled on the region as much as it should be peeled on Israel. Sure, the regime may go after soft targets and kind of support the kind of consistent terrorism that it supported against Israel in the past, but I would be on the lookout for more missile use because if passed Mm. its prologue, the regime feels exceptionally comfortable responding, perhaps not directly against Israel. In fact, there's documentary evidence for them not trying to directly engage Israel with these missiles, but oddly enough, they feel comfortable doing it against America because when Iran was responding to the killing of Soleimani, it did so overtly publicly and using these missiles. So expect more, not less, of these sorts of missile operations from the regime.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, there's lots of aspects of the, uh, of the, uh, the campaign between the wars that you mentioned, that Israel is, is kind of the, the shadow war between Israel and Iran. One new theater, which at least has been reported in the Israeli media, is the kind of taking the Iranian model of supporting proxies, and we've mentioned that they support them, obviously Hezbollah in Lebanon, in Syria, in, uh, in, in Yemen, and in, and in Iraq but also trying now to, uh, to, to insert themselves into the Palestinian Authority and even amongst Israeli Arabs. Do you have any, uh, any idea of kind of what that, what that aid looks like?
1: Uh, can, you, can you rephrase that? Sorry, I didn't, I didn't catch the tail end. I, I, the, the I Iranian- Basically
0: the, the new aspects of Iranians kind of c- carrying on their model of proxy, uh, um, of helping proxies in the region by helping Palestinian groups. Both, both wow. within, within Gaza and the West Bank, and also trying to uh, trying to build up cells amongst Israeli Arabs inside inside Israel as well.
1: I certainly think for the regime, it's a natural extension of the partners they're looking to add to in terms of the axis of resistance. But make no mistake, that the, the ties that bind are already there for actors like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And one need to only look to at least in terms of tracking the capabilities front. Uh, You know, we talked about the different or, you know, we hinted at the language difference between missiles and rockets when looking at what Iran has done for some proxies versus others. Uh, But even the longer range rockets are believed to be somehow uh, Iranian support for local production, which is an Iranian pattern of uh, an evolving Iranian pattern of proliferation. So rather than have to traffic whole systems to these proxies, as in years past, uh, or rather than have to have whole shipments and kind of be found and upscounded like the Karine affair from way back in the day, or much more recently, Israel strikes in Syria on some of these depots. It is trafficking those precision kits to actors in Lebanon, or uh, allegedly supporting local production using local materials, as is believed to be the case in the Palestinian territories. So I see, if that theory holds, this being a natural extension of the way the Islamic Republic has been prosecuting its own version of a death by a thousand cuts against Israel. And that is ultimately the way the regime is working on, you know, implementing indeed against Israel what it says in word. And that is arming, training, equipping, radicalizing, sending off men, money, munitions in this fight against Israel but moving the knife increasingly closer in different qualitative ways across the whole series of fronts so that the next war would be more and more and more of a multi-front war, and not just a multi-front war, a multi-dimension war. The maritime domain, the cyber domain, uh, concurrent with, you know, when we're talking about uh, range pans, uh, Israeli defenses will have to worry about if anything comes from Iraq or if anything comes from the Iranian homeland or if anything comes from Yemen as much as where something could be launched from closer in be it in the north, like Lebanon, or north northeast, like Syria, or the volley of rocket fire, where it's quantitative, uh, from the south, like Gaza.
0: Yes, there's lots of. I mean, I mean, you've, you've you've kind of significantly presented all of those all of those range of multi-domain threats um, that I think will continue to occupy us uh, in the uh, in the weeks and months to come. If I can just ask you one, uh, just to pivot on one other topic for a final a final question. Um, while I've got you, it'd be great to hear your assessment um, on the domestic uh, protests inside Iran. And it seems to have gone a little bit quiet over the last few uh, last few days, at least. But what's your what's your assessment of, of where they are and if they can really make a difference?
1: You know, I'm I'm very glad you mentioned this because so many times the conversations about human rights and security happen in silos, be it on this side of the Atlantic or that side of the Atlantic. But ultimately, uh, the real challenge that the government of the islamic republic knows uh to itself to be is not you know one western actor with one kind of outsized conventional capability it's from within it's that the government of the islamic republic knows it does not have the support of the iranian people it's that the government of the islamic republic knows that people since 2009 and then really embossed since 2017 have been chanting not gaza not lebanon my life for iran fundamentally what you have there is a revolutionary regime in charge of a post-revolutionary society. And beyond that, you have an Islamist regime trying to contain and contest the rising nationalism of a population that does does not see the world the way the regime sees it, is not cut from the same cloth that the regime is. And really you have the, the, the recipe for the boom and bust cycle of protests that we've seen from 2017 to present, of which the most latest iteration uh, triggered by the killing, the brutal killing of a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman named Masajina Amini uh, in Tehran in September 2022, uh, for failing to adhere allegedly to the to the dress codes, which are enforced through violence. By the way, um, ultimately, that is the next frontier here. Uh, that is not the first protest that Iran has faced in 2022, and it is not the only protest that Iran will face in the future. Uh, the triggers for anti-regime protests across Iran are almost now non-political, uh, in the sense that there are economic triggers, social triggers, and even environmental triggers to what will bring the Iranian population out onto the street. Because the most important clock to watch, the most important debate, is not just the missile, military, nuclear, it's not just the drones, it's not just proliferation, it's not just the regime's vitriolic ideology and to the revolution. It is the fight, it is the debate. It is the contest between state and the society or the state and the street. And if Europe thinks that it can placate the regime through this kind of continued engagement and kind of turn a blind eye to what is going on in the street and say this will peter out or this will fizzle out or this is yet another iteration of demonstrations and this regime is here to stay. Well, it will not only be doing itself a a moral and a political disservice but it will also be a strategic disservice because you can't hang your hat on something that has no staying power. And that is something I think high-time governments uh, across Europe understood, that all this kind of stuff it's hoping for, just to kind of keep a lid on it, it has failed to do. And the policy of turning a blind eye has failed to actually buy it, the kind of the peace and the calm and the quiet that it may have coveted. Not stopping Iran and Syria uh, led to the refugee flows that have gone into Europe not stopping Iran's arms proliferation and drone attacks in the Middle East is now what is emboldening Iran to do so vis-a-vis the Russians and outside of the Middle East. Not stopping Iran's abuse of you know, international financial networks are how precisely, even while at the peak of US maximum pressure sanctions in 2018-2020, the regime was still you know, using and abusing the formal financial sector uh, to make ends meet. So you know, it's high time we recalibrate, it's high time we make an assessment of our Iran policies on both sides of the Atlantic, based on the facts on the ground in Iran, and that begins with properly understanding this fight between the state and the street, which is certainly not over.
0: Wow, fascinating! Thank you so much uh, for your insights uh, today. That was uh, that was really valuable. I learned a lot, and I hope our audience uh, appreciate that as well. Thank you very much indeed for your time today.
1: It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me and thank you for the opportunity.